The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 86 of The Things We All Carry. This week I had the pleasure of speaking with Alex Potter. One of the first things Alex told me when we spoke was that she always knew hers would be a travel-centered life. Travel, along with living and working abroad, changes and enlightens anyone who chooses to do so. You can't help but change a little, at least a little, once you're exposed and immersed in a culture other than yours. Anthony Bourdain once said, travel changes you. As you move through this life and this world, you change things slightly. You leave marks behind, however small. And in return, life and travel leaves marks on you. Alex went to school to become a nurse. During that time, she chose to study abroad. She spent time in India, Uganda, and Jordan while working on her degree. All the while, she knew she had a passion for journalism and photography. Once she graduated, nursing jobs were tough to find, and she returned to Jordan. That was the start of a career that would find her in Jordan, Yemen, and Iraq, just to name a few of the countries. Her story takes twists and turns involving revolutions, invasions, wildland firefighting, trauma nursing, and in the middle of all of it, finding love. Alex has experienced her share of trauma, death, loss, and grief. Never one to back down from a challenge, Alex has met it all head on and with her head up. Perseverance and a life fulfilled are the themes running through every aspect of her human experience. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes us, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. have a conversation and see where we go yeah that sounds great all right awesome welcome back to the things we all carry this morning we have alex joining us from alaska um she has agreed to get up early on a on a monday morning and talk to us and share her story she's a trauma nurse she's also a co-founder of global response medicine and a photojournalist and she's had a very interesting life and a very interesting run in the last few years um but i kind of want to just ask you First, I've been trying to do it with everybody. What's the last song you heard? Oh, <laughs> man, I've got to look up who sings it, but I think it's, it's Rising Appalachia. And it's a song called Caminando. It's a really relaxing okay. morning, wake up right. calm song. Okay, cool. Yeah, so you heard between, that this morning? I did. Yeah. Well, I listened right. to it. I've, I've listened to it many times between that. And I guess the newest artist I've heard of is called dead on a Sunday and they're dead crazy. on the Sunday. Mm-hmm. That's the artist name dead on a Sunday. Yeah. 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 They, uh, okay. They named themselves Bob core, like uh, Bob from Bob's burgers and an okay. emo, emo rock band. So. Well, all right. Well, that gives me two that I haven't heard of before they get to check out. So that'll be cool. Thanks. Yeah. All right. So one thing that I guess is if there's a theme about your life, it's you don't like to sit still. No, definitely so not. I know you, when we first talked, we spoke on the phone. I don't know. It was only a week ago. Um, you mentioned that your life has always been a travel centered life. Mm-hmm. So very much. So. How did 
how did you get to that point where, where life became that way for you? Where did you grow up and, and why did travel and exploration become such an important part of your life? You know, it seems like it's always just been inherent in my personality. And maybe I was born with some travel gene or I don't know. But I grew up in southwest Minnesota in a small farming community. My dad was a farmer. My mom was a dental assistant. Um, but from the time I was young, even before I traveled, I was interested in the world. So my parents would buy me National Geographic. They would buy me zoo books. They would buy me Lonely Planet travel guides before I would even go anywhere. Um, and my parents are really good about fostering any kind of interests that my sister and I had. Um, so I grew up kind of in the church. So my first um, experiences with travel were related to that, to Panama and Russia. Um, and then that it really just took off from there. So I chose a college that prioritized study abroad um, and was able to study for short periods of time in Jordan, Uganda and India. And, and yeah, just after that, I knew, you know, I was so fascinated in the world and travel and different cultures and societies and, and what's going on there. I knew I wanted to be a journalist, even though I was in nursing school. My parents begged me to finish my degree, and I was like, okay, I guess. And to this day, I'm, I'm thankful that I did because it's been very advantageous um, job-wise. Um, but yeah, after I graduated from college, I just moved to the Middle East and my journalism career took off from there. It's funny because you, you throw it out there like, I just, you know, I just up and moved to the Middle East. Like, it's not a big deal. Most people would, would, would be aghast at the idea of, of leaving <laughs> to go to the Middle East just to, to, cause you, you had nothing and you had nothing guaranteed wherever you went. No. <laughs> and that's, that's a common theme with journalism, wherever you move, you know. Um, working internationally, people tend to gravitate towards regional hubs. So for the Middle East, usually being Lebanon or Egypt, for Southeast Asia and Thailand, for um, East Africa, people generally settle in Kenya, et cetera. Um, but it's like any other arts career. You kind of have to put in your time, work on projects, and income is never guaranteed. So everybody's got some sort of side hustle. It just happened to be that for me, my side hustle was nursing in the sense that I'd spent a large portion of time overseas, come back to the States and do a travel nursing contract so I could pay my bills. So let, let, let's set the time frame. You graduate from college in what year? I think it was 2011. <laughs> okay. Or and the reason... I think the reason that's important is because of what's going on in the world at the time. Yeah, yeah. 2011. 2011. Yep. Right. And 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 at that time you you graduate 2011 and you find what when you when you get to the Middle East. So, what a lot of my colleagues in the journalism world, people who are, you know, 5 years plus or minus on either side of me launched their careers during the Arab Spring, which really kicked off um, in January of 2011, which is funny because I had no idea it even happened because I was in Uganda for a month without cell service. Um, but that was, you know, a defining moment in the Middle East and um, changed the world really for the next until now. Uh, but I missed the Arab Spring, but I I took off from the States to Jordan because I had studied abroad there before and I had a couple friends 
Jordan was pretty quiet on the news front. And I saw in their newspaper that Yemen was having an election. So post-revolution election time, very newsworthy. Lots of people gravitate towards it. I didn't know anything about Yemen. You know, it's not not too many, no, not too many people know anything about Yemen. But, you know, I read for a couple hours. I bought a plane ticket. I saw that a lot of journalists and photographers whose work I really admired were there. Um, I emailed the whole staff of the local English newspaper there. And they're like, yeah, come on. Yeah. <laughs> so I just went to Yemen. Um, which sounds let's, let's, crazy. Let's back but... up just a second. Let's, let's kind of, for people that aren't aware, or maybe weren't paying attention during that time, what was Arab Spring? The Arab Spring was a series of revolutions that kicked off, I believe it was in Tunisia, um, was the first one. Uh, people wanted regime change. They wanted more um, representation for the people. And each country had a different, you know, a different set of goals and wildly different uh, ways that their protests played out. You know, I think in Jordan, they just had some protests, maybe no deaths, and the uh, the king changed parliament, I believe, all the way on the spectrum to the war you know, enormous civil war in Libya that's still going on today and Syria, et cetera. Um, and it happened in most every country throughout the Middle East, just a, a call for regime change and giving up power from people who've held it for decades. Um, sometimes and, and it was peaceful and sometimes it was very violent. I was going to say, when you use the word regime change, because we hear that a lot from from the standpoint of one country trying to affect change in another country, where, where some of this, the majority of this was was more of a grassroots kind of call for regime change. Am I correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very so much so. It was, it was more the people rising up and saying, no, we, we don't want this. We need we, we need change. And, and they were trying to direct that change as opposed to an outside influence trying to direct the change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you do have people who say, like, under the table, America caused the, the of course, people say that. But no, it was very much um, the people wanted change for themselves. And in Yemen in particular, even though I wasn't there for the bulk of the revolution, their quote-unquote change square um, persisted for at least a year after that. And it was a really unique place where... People from all ages, all political parties, different tribes, people from North and South um, came together um, in, in one place for one purpose, at least for a period of time. And I think the interesting, coming from your standpoint of wanting to do journalism over there at that time, the interesting part for me was that I distinctly remember the Arab Spring and it was, it was this, I watched it unfold on Twitter and you, you see it from from those people that were making the call for change were, were the ones reporting on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty it was, amazing. It was fascinating. It was fascinating to watch. I was back before Twitter turned into a cesspool. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are the words we used exactly just the other day. Yeah. And it is quite a cesspool now, but it was fascinating to watch it unfold in real time, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you get to Yemen in 2012 or is it? 2012. It, it, yep. Okay. And so I, I know I interrupted you a little bit there. So what do you find when you get to Yemen? It was a very, very different place. <laughs> you know, there are some places you go in the Middle East like Jordan or Lebanon. Um, 
maybe even Tunisia. I've never been there, but like Jordan and Lebanon that I'm very familiar with, you know, you can walk around in most clothes that you're comfortable with. You can go for a run as a woman. You have all of the amenities that you would ever want. Um, but Yemen is out of another world, man. It's it's incredibly conservative as far as dress and customs and cultures. Um, and it has, you know, beautiful architecture, traditional buildings, but it's also very poor. Um, the Arabic accent was like nothing I had ever heard before. Uh, but people were also incredibly kind and incredibly friendly. So one interacting with the locals, the Yemenis, who were at the time just so stoked to have all these foreign journalists here or the eyes of the world on Yemen to show like, look, we can change. We are electing a new president, even though the president was kind of like chosen. So it was like a selection, not a real election. They were still excited for something new. Um, and then landing there and seeing these photojournalists, photojournalists whose work I had looked up to for a long time and seeing, uh, you know, they're just normal people like you and me, and they're very willing to help you out and mentor you and show you the ropes in as much as they're capable. And yeah, it was, I only stayed for, let's see, I stayed for probably four or five months till my money ran out. And then, because when you're a new journalist, you have no editorial contacts, you have very little way to make money. I stayed till my money ran out, but those first four or five months allowed me to build up a portfolio of work that shows your visual voice that allows you to pitch yourself to editors in the future. Um, went back to the States, did some nursing, and then I had a Rotary ambassadorial scholarship for that fall in Lebanon to study Arabic. So then for that next year, I bounced between Lebanon and Yemen studying Arabic and working as journalists. So how, how is that going when you're there? How, how does, how do you start to take hold as a journalist? And there were a couple of things that helped me out um, because I did not go to journalism school. I didn't do a traditional journalism internship. Um, I just kind of threw myself into a place that was undercovered, that had very few other photographers or journalists there, which was helpful, um, and lived in a place where people were really unwilling to live at the time. Yemen is not an easy place to live. You know, the electricity is always out. When it comes on, I have to run downstairs to turn my water pump on and run upstairs, you know, all these, those types of things. Um, it doesn't have all of the amenities that you would want uh, as potentially as someone from the West, but I really loved it. I loved the people. I loved the culture and the food. And it was so different. You know, everything was new every day. Um, so, and with that, you know, I was photographing everywhere I went. It didn't have to just be news. But the more you photograph, the more you develop that sort of visual voice that I was talking about. And there are a couple events in the journalism world that help launch, I guess, careers of young photographers. Um, portfolio review weekends, um, week-long retreats where you go out and shoot a story and some of the best editors in the world help you, you know, refine your voice. So I submitted to probably, I don't know, a bunch of them. I got accepted to a bunch of them. At a few of them, I got an 
you know, recognition for my work. Um, so that in addition to returning to Yemen again and again, helped me kind of cement my place in the journalism world. Do you have, do you have stories that, that you covered in Yemen that stand out to you? It's not particularly, you know, one day stories, Mm -hmm. but I think I was, I really wish I would have been in Yemen during the revolution because then I would have had a, you know, been able to see the chronicle of the nation from that revolution and war to, to this one. But I think I stayed at a really fascinating time. So there was an election and then there was a lot of bunch of different things going on, but the, the path that the Houthis took to, took over, to take over the government, I was there for the majority of that. And I produced some of my favorite photographs I've ever taken from that story. And also I think it's just a a really, a really interesting time to trace the path between this group that was uh, a sort of marginalized socio-religious political group to someone who seized political power and used it against other people for their own, for their own gain. And so the entire time you're in Yemen, you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're, you're funding your own way there, correct? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're working, I think you said nine months of the year in Yemen doing, doing journalism. And then you're coming back to the States and you're working three months travel nurse, roughly. Mm-hmm. In general, yep. And, and you're a trauma nurse. That's your specialty. So it's not, we, we talked about this. You're not coming home to take a break and take a breather. Well, funnily enough, I was not a trauma nurse at the time. Okay. That's something I've evolved into, but I will say the type of nursing that I was doing at that time was more exhausting than trauma. Um, okay. Because I had such little, little consistent nursing experience at the time. Most of my jobs were um, either in long-term acute care or nursing homes or prison or, <laughs> or home care. I was nursing in all of these places and spaces where you're like one nurse to 30 patients. So it was not relaxing at all. Yeah, uh, and, and I, I, fell, that, I fell into the trauma world later. That nursing and that kind of a, a ratio is something that's foreign to people unless you're in nursing and, and how ratios affect your, your experience on the job. And it's something I haven't touched on a lot on the show with recording, but it's something that I've, I've talked to a couple of nurses about and and what that, what that ratio should be on different floors and how it's just not being adhered to anywhere, basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ratio, ratio in a nursing home is very different than ratio in acute care versus in the ER, even versus what we dealt with over in Mosul. You know, it depends on your responsibilities. Yeah, and, and, and I guess it's, it's all about, unfortunately, for most places, it's still just about the bottom line. Mm. And so that, that creates this distress on, on nurses and doctors and, and, and everyone else in that setting. All right. So you, you, you're doing this rotation nine months on in, in Yemen, three months in the States doing nursing. And, and for how long do you, do you, how long do you spend in Yemen doing this? This is from about 2012 to the end of 2015. So, okay. so three and a half, three and a half years. So, and that, I mean, that can. Obviously, it has to be kind of exhausting, but fascinating at the same time. 
Um, and, and why do you leave Yemen? Yeah, why do I leave? <laughs> I wish I didn't have to leave. Um, the powers at B were very unhappy that foreigners were still living in Yemen. Basically, they wanted, if you were a journalist, they wanted you there on a one-month journalism visa to be escorted wherever you were by a minder, uh, just like a government Klingon, basically. Uh, and they they don't want you roaming free in the country, basically. And a, a bunch of journalists had already been deported or or forced to leave of their own accord. And the person, the Yemeni person I was living with at the time didn't tell me all the details, but he was like, we have to leave. And the, there were no flights at the time. The airport was shut down. So I took a bar to the coast and then I took a boat to Djibouti. And I got off this boat and there were people from the American embassy there. And they're like, what are you doing here? Because these were all, these were all Yemenis. I was just saying, you just show up. Yeah, these are all Yemenis who are fleeing the war. You know, there were people who wanted to get out of, you know, get out of that terrible situation. And this random white chick lives on the boat or gets off the boat. And they're like, what is happening? Um, so what do you what do you do? Oh, I just I get off the boat in Djibouti and I get a hotel and I fly away because I had the luxury to do that. Unlike a lot of those Yemenis there. So and then you, it was, you, it, yeah, it, it, was, it was unfortunate. I wish I would have been able to stay in Yemen, but it was just untenable from a security perspective. So, so what do you do? You, you find your way home or where do you find your way? That next year was pretty miserable because I had felt so comfortable in Yemen. <laughs> I felt like that was my home base. I was happy to be there and explore the region from there so i do go back to to minnesota do some nursing but then i bounce around a bunch trying to find a new base of operations from somewhere i'd be comfortable and i tried ethiopia kenya egypt um a couple other places and essentially i was like i don't really feel at home anywhere i'm not really getting work anywhere so i'll try one more one more place, which is Iraq. And if that doesn't work out, I guess I will just go back to nursing and be like, screw it. So, so you try Iraq and, and what year is, what, what year do you find yourself in Iraq? This was the fall of 2016. Okay. And you want to set the stage for what's going on in Iraq in 2016? If, if people were living under rocks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, was living under a small rock because I was so focused on Yemen. So I knew about, you know, I had been following the rise of ISIS, whatnot, and I had been to northern Iraq previously once, if not twice, before I got there in 2016. I think at least twice. So I knew ISIS had taken over large swaths of northern Iraq and Syria, but I, what I didn't know was that that when I landed, I think the day I landed was the start of the battle for Mosul. So the Kurdish people, which comprise a large area of northern Iraq, had taken back um, a bunch of their villages to the east of Mosul. And, and uh, sorry, the Iraqis were just starting their assault on Mosul itself right when I landed. 
So I didn't know that every journalist I had ever heard of would be in the country. I had just wanted to go there to cover some conflict adjacent stories, stories of uh, like couples who had been separated by war and whatnot. I didn't know that the battle was about to be as big as it was. Uh, so, so when I land, so, you know, there's hundreds of journalists there. <laughs> right. And that's what I'm, I guess at that point, I'm curious, like, have you built a portfolio big enough to compete or, or what do you, what do you do? Yeah, not, a, not at that extent. And the, the thing about journalism is that your ability to get work is dependent on the work you make, who you know, and where you are. So I knew I made really good work and I knew enough editors to have a good base of, of contacts, but I had not worked extensively in Iraq before. People didn't know it as like my place and my space. And there were other journalists who had spent a lot more time there than I had. So I was kind of like, man, I'm not going to be very useful here. Both because you don't want to be making work only from a selfish perspective, get paid, right? Like you have a goal with your with your work. And for me, that's telling stories of, of people whose stories might not be told, kind of building bridges and uh, helping other people view each other in an equitable way. Um, but my thought process was there were plenty of people here taking photos, many, many people taking photos, but I should be able to use my skills to help in another way. So I'm a nurse. There are people being injured. It's a war. There's got to be something I can do, you know. <laughs> so, so nursing comes into play. It comes to my mind, yes. And so just at the stage for Mosul, basically, Mosul is the largest city in northern Iraq, Iraq proper. You've got Erbil, which is on the Kurdish side, but Mosul is, is in Iraq proper. I think before the war, it had like three or four million people. I'm not sure. Big melting pot of cultures and ethnicities, etc. It's divided by a river. Got east and west side. On the um, east, it opens up to the plains, uh, the Nineveh plains, which are Kurdish regions. And the west, it opens up to the desert, uh, going over to the border with Jordan. Um, the west side's got an old city which has very traditional buildings, narrow alleyways, et cetera. You would think the plan would be for people to leave ahead of a huge military assault. But I think the Iraqis believed that it would take such a short period of time. It could be kind of a shock and awe against ISIS. So ISIS had, had taken over the city. You know, they prevented people from leaving. They had their own currency. They were enslaving women. Um, they had taken over every, every part of society. So come time for the assault, people, I believe, had the ability to leave for a short period of time, and then they just, like, locked it down. It's so like, nope. Uh, so you still have millions when you of say, people. When you, I'm sorry. When you say they locked it down, ISIS locked it down, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So people needed papers to travel. Um, there were many checkpoints everywhere, and they just didn't have the ability to get out. Um. So I don't remember the exact date of when the battle starts. I think it was no November 4th because I got there a couple days after. I remember I was sitting in Istanbul on election night and we're like, 
oh, Hillary is going to win. And then I wake up the next morning. I was like, oh, my God. Wild. That, that, that was the night that I flew to Iraq was the election night. So, yeah. Anyway, I get there. Not going to do journalism. Medicine comes into play. All these people are being injured because it's a huge military assault on, uh, on an urban area. But the people you would think would be engaged far forward to be within that golden hour or platinum 10 minutes are not there. They are doing good work in displaced persons camp a couple hours back from the front. But it's a, it's a very complicated situation. So traditional large nonprofits were not engaging because of safety. And by and engaging, you mean they, they weren't caring for, for the wounded? They were not. They were not caring for them far forward. And you can throw blame on a lot of different people. But one, it was for security because, you know, in humanitarian principles, and this is something I can talk about later, in their minds, humanitarian principles has independence, neutrality, impartiality, and humanity. And for them, the other ones other than humanity means you can't hire private security to protect you and you can't be located in the same place as military, even military medics. So for them, that meant having to be, you know, more than an hour behind the front. Um, so part of it, I believe, was because there wasn't a plan put in place. There wasn't enough planning ahead of time. Part of that reason is because people believed that everyone would flee. No one thought that there would be, you know, tens of thousands of wounded in this battle. So you, you show up in Mosul. I was going to say it's the, it's a battle. I was going to say invasion. It's not really invasion. Well, I guess it is an invasion, correct? Yeah. I, I mean, they're invading to take it back. Invading the invaders. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. this isn't, this isn't full bloom when you show up. Yeah. Or how do you I, get to, or how do you get to Mosul? Let's tell that story. I mean, cause you don't, you don't fly into Mosul, correct? No, 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 no. You fly into Erbil, which is a Kurdish city. It's very safe. You know, that's where the UN, WHO, all the NGOs have their base of operations. You can go out and drink. You can go for a run. That's where everybody resupplies, rests, refits, has bars, etc. Um, and then you drive west into the city. It could be anywhere from two hours to five-hour drive, depending on the, who's manning the checkpoints and traffic at the time. But I don't go there immediately when I get there. I photograph around a little bit find out that these other nonprofits are not really doing trauma work. And so then I see an article in the Washington Post about these two guys, Pete Reed and Derek Coleman, and it looks like they're doing something. They've got a bunch of random Slovak former military medics who are doing the essential trauma care on the front line, close to the front lines with the Iraqi military medics. So I message both of them on Facebook and... Derek answers briefly, but all I get back from Pete was, hey, Alex, and doesn't answer for another week. And so I'm like, okay, bopping around, doing my thing. Turns out Pete was on vacation in Turkey because uh, the, their first two weeks of the battle was super intense. But when he comes back, I meet them both in a coffee shop and be like, hey, I'm a nurse. I would like to help you guys out. And they're like, sure, come on out. 
So then the next day, and that was my birthday. We load up the next morning and just drive into Mosul because Pete and Derek and their entire team had already been working there for a few weeks. Had and and Pete and Derek both had been in the country for at least a year prior to that, doing T Triple C training and other things like this with the Kurds. Um, but Pete had already built up. Pete had already built up. Um, good relationships with the Iraqi generals and the medical teams, and um, they'd been working with them for a number of weeks already. So I thought that I would stay for a couple weeks, and that plan very quickly changed. So what's your experience the first time you you stepped foot into Mosul? The first time we come, it's funny, there was a news channel following Pete and his team. And I don't remember which channel it is. I think it was Jane Ferguson. <laughs> and I don't remember which channel she's on. Hi, Jane. Um, <laughs> but they, yeah, we're rolling in. They're all suited up in their flak jackets and stuff. But we're far back enough that that's really not necessary at the time. But that's TV News Network things. We get there. And at that time, the trauma stabilization points were being run out of a house in Gogjali, which is kind of an outskirts neighborhood on the east side of Mosul. So throughout the battle, we operated in, in houses, mosques, schools, and courtyards that had been cleared by EOD because they were hard structures that we could live, eat, sleep, treat patients in. I get there, and about the minute that we arrive, patients start rolling in. And I think that first day we had between 30 and 50 trauma patients and trauma ranging from minor scrapes and lacerations to a, a couple people that had lost their limbs, you know, and that remained the case throughout the entire battle for Mosul. I don't think there was a single day we had less than 20 patients and the most we ever had, I think was over a hundred, <clears throat> one of the West side days and going just a brief note on like what constitutes overload as far as ratio it's funny because in the state you're you're in the er and i'm fortunate to work in the er right now i i never have more than five patients and the hospital is amazing uh, but you've got all these responsibilities for charting and documentation and making these standards and getting things on time and that's the ideal world you know and what we're doing in these trauma stabilization points is very basic care stop the bleeding make sure they're breathing stabilize the fractures pain control fluids if they need it sometimes starting antibiotics um so because of that we weren't really designated like you take these three patients you take these three it was more like oh this guy's really good at ivs he's gonna put an iv in all 30 people this right. person got great at setting up this you know this person's great at packing wounds you know so that was that was how we operated for the entire battle and we had between you know like i said on average probably 30 to 50 patients a day and who were you treating was it so, civilian no so this was the thing pete had just of his own accord before the battle started because he had done this with the, the Kurdish military before, 
there, there was no way to really protect yourself if you were on your own. You know, ISIS had co-opted a bunch of civilian vehicles, making them into IEDs and whatnot. Um, but Pete went to the Iraqi generals and was like, hey, we need a way to be able to treat civilians. We will help treat your men if you allow us to, you know, bunk with you, protect us, and you bring us civilians. So civilians at the time in the city weren't allowed to drive cars either. Um, coalition would hit them because they were all uh, made into suicide vehicles. Um, so Pete made this deal. Bring us civilians. We'll treat your guys. So we were treating Iraqi military and then Iraqi civilians and then also members of ISIS who rolled through um, before security took them. But we treated everybody non-discriminatory. It was probably a 60-40 split between civilians and military. And then within those civilians, it was probably 50-50 between men and then women and children. So it's a wide range of, of people and, and backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, very much so. And, and I guess on the, on the flip side, um, not the flip side, but, but I guess the positive side there is, is I was trying to figure out like, what's it like to go, okay, this guy is ISIS. Is there a, is there a difference in that, that approach? And I'm, I'm assuming no, of course, because you're not as a nurse or a doctor or whatever on the, in, in those situations, you're not applying politics. You're just applying medicine. Mm-hmm. I think that's an easy, very political, correct way to say that. I think what you feel inside yourself is different a little bit. Um, I would imagine be- so. Yeah. At the beginning of the battle, 100%. For me, it was very easy. It was just like, this is a person. I don't, I don't know what they're doing with their life. You know, a lot of, and I have worked in other places where terrorist groups have taken hold. And I know that a lot of the time they pull in young, poor men who are like, here's a salary, here's a motorcycle, say you work for us. And sometimes they don't do anything wrong. Sometimes. Um, so a lot of people we'd get were just like, young skinny dudes you know were probably an accountant or a delivery driver or something but there were obviously very bad dudes in the mix as the battle went on and we had more and more civilians particularly children you know it's one thing to to deal with injured adults and they it's sad and it's messed up but they've lived their lives but we had a lot of kids too and we had a lot of like blown up kids it wasn't just like this kid has a scratch on their face it was very graphic and there are things that will like live for me till the end of time live with me till the end of time and when i saw more and more of that particularly in the last month of the battle when we were coming up on the old city and you saw hundreds of people streaming out of the city who had been like kept in bunkers by ISIS and not only were they injured they were malnourished and just mm. you, get a lot, you get a lot of anger <laughs> so I mm-hmm. still treat them of course but I'm not gonna lie and say that there was no resentment inside of me but I would still treat them as the um the not the the currently non-combatant that they were and it's my job as a civilian to provide them the medical care that they need do you guys ever get threatened during that time? By ISIS? Yeah. There were a couple of times. There was one time on the east side when Pete wasn't there, actually. And it was my first time having to step up and be like, oh, shit. Um, 
we were, it was nighttime. The Iraqis were kind of suiting up instead of going to bed. And I spoke Arabic and I heard them talking. So I was like, what's going on? And they're like, nothing, nothing, fine. I was like, no, tell me. They're like, oh, we just heard that ISIS is coming for the Americans. I was like, oh, cool. You should probably tell me that. So I called Pete and he told us where to go. So we pulled back like 15 minutes and ended up, um, actually ended up at a, um, gosh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Anyway, we pulled back about 15 minutes down the road and we found out the next morning that the Iraqi police killed the ISIS that were coming for the Americans. So from that time on, for the rest of the time, we were in that Gogjali house. We operated in the house during the day and we slept further back at night. Um, And then there was another time uh, on the west side. There was one time on the west side when we were not threatened directly, but I believe ISIS broke through some of the Iraqi lines. Um, I think it was in April. Uh, but a bunch of people had to go running, basically. And luckily, there was a large highway outside the south side. Um, to, sorry, to the south on the west side of Mosul. And everybody just peaced out for the day until that group of ISIS was eliminated. Tell me a little bit about Pete. What, what was he like when you first met him? What, what, I mean, what, what stood out to you about Pete? Oh, man. Pete was the biggest personality. I have ever met in my life. Um, let's see. When was the first time I actually saw him? I think I first saw him in that coffee shop. And I was like, oh, this is a good looking guy. He's handsome. He's got beautiful hair and nice big Leonidas beard. <laughs> but he's also like a big <laughs> dude also. But I wasn't, I wasn't thinking of him in, a, in any particular way at the time. But Seeing him in the field, seeing him interact with with patients and coworkers, and being able to flip the switch from someone who is goofy and loving and had a dirty sense of humor and ate peanut butter out of the jar by the spoonful for his lunch, <laughs> I would just like give the best hugs, but also make people laugh. And someone who was able to flip that switch immediately to very strongly directing people where to go, what to do. And in essence, like being a great leader was really incredible for me to watch. And I was really kind of taken aback. (laughs) Um, What was his background? So Pete grew up in Bordentown, New Jersey. He had served in the Marine Corps infantry, had two deployments to Afghanistan, as an 0311. Um, and then, you know, he had the time there that he had in the deployments, I think, were 2008 and 2010, really difficult times in Helmand. Uh, so when he got out, he suffered from a lot of things that a lot of veterans did, you know, PTSD, lack of purpose, um, etc. Then he went on a he hitchhiked out to the west, didn't know where he was going. And when he came over the pass into Jackson Hole, he was like, this is where I'm going to be. So he got out and ended up teaching skiing there um, at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort for, I think, three years. And that was his then place. That was his happy place that he found himself again. And throughout his life, he was really known 
as someone who was big personality, goofy, happy, but also like incredibly caring and made people feel seen. And so that's why he was able to like land in Jacksonville and that night have a place to stay for the next few months. And that's why he was able to land in Iraq and just start teaching TCCC to the Kurdish Peshmerga within a couple months, you know. Um, but then, you know, a series of events happened in Jackson that made him feel like, oh, I need to be, I need to be doing something else. And him seeing ISIS on the news, I think he still had a lot of fight in him. You know, once someone is in the infantry and has, you know, kind of experienced that, that warrior mentality and that camaraderie, you want to be able to make a difference in that way again. So he picked up and moved to to Erbil, I think, with the initial intention of going to fight ISIS. <laughs> but he landed and realized that that was neither a good idea nor very useful. So that's why he started doing the TCCC training with the Peshmerga and eventually falling into the Mosul. So for, for, for those who might, know, might not know, can you explain what TCCC is? Mm. Tactical combat casualty care. So it's just the okay. initial point of contact care when someone's been hit in, a, in combat. And I got a bunch of firefighters sitting around listening going, what? Huh? Yeah. So yeah. It, it's it's like TECC, like the police force in the States, no tactical emergency casualty care. And the main difference between those two is that actually theirs might even be TCCC because I think TECC doesn't have the return fire component. Gotcha. Well, there we go. Yeah. So that, that clears it up a little bit. So <laughs> he, he just appears in Iraq and, and decides, okay, this is, this is what I need to do. I, I, I need to, I need to treat patients. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was, there was a series of evolutions where he is like, all right, I'm not going to go to fight ISIS. So now I need a job. He ends up working at the local hospital and they call him their head nurse, even though he is an EMT with TCCC training. <laughs> you know, that's what happens in other countries, right? Um, so then throughout a series of events, he gets connected with the Peshmerga, which are the Kurdish military forces. And he thought that some trauma training ahead of their battles for ISIS would be useful, which he did. And then he gathered his team and they tagged along with the Peshmerga for their offensives against ISIS because they're like, oh, we trust you. We know you. you you've taught us these techniques already so far. Um, so they accompanied them for that offensive first. And, and this, is, this is where this, the, the company is born from, correct? Or is, or is uh, this... Yes, it was like the very beginnings of it. So the one that we eventually founded uh, and it was so the initial founders on the paperwork were Pete, Derek, and John, who had all been together for this Peshmerga offensive, which was wildly different than Mosul. Mosul was dangerous, but we were operating in hard structures. The Peshmerga one, that I think lasted a couple of weeks, um, maybe longer, uh, it was very cowboy run and gun. Like they were just in trucks. They would have to move forward and retreat very actively. It was, it was crazy. And I am a little jealous. I wasn't there for that. 
Um, so at the time, they were operating under the banner of our friend's organization, the Academy of Emergency Medicine, which is a Slovak NGO. Um, and then after a couple months of Mosul, we were like, you know, we need money. And the WHO is like, well, if you want money, you have to be a 501c3 organization. So right. that's why we founded GRM. Okay, so that that's kind of gives a little bit background on Pete and, and your entrance into Mosul. Mm-hmm. And you say that it was, I know when we talked recently, it was, you, you talked about this, this being under stress and then you, you, you're also not only under stress, but you guys find each other, right? Mm-hmm. So how yeah. does that go in that <laughs> setting? I mean, it's, it's, it makes sense when you think about it, right? Oh, yeah, a hundred percent. It makes sense to me. It may not make sense to people who haven't been in the war. So. But I mean, there are journalists out there who date each other. There are whatever. But um, yeah, we were just really drawn to each other very quickly. And apparently the week before he got out there, he was talking to some of his friends. And they were like, you know, Pete, when you meet the one, you'll know it. And there are some there. Uh, I think his name, I think it was O.C. that took some photos of us. There's a set of photos from, I think, four days after we met. Of us sitting together and talking and you can just see the way we are looking into each other's eyes. It's like, oh, my God, <laughs> these people are in puppy love from the second they meet each other. So for me, it was that once we get into the field, um, instant attraction to someone who can be gregarious, funny, loving, caring, and then flip the switch into this hardcore, badass, sexy man leader, you know. (laughs) Um, And then someone who also uh, empowered me to, you know, further my practice and trusted me with things and kind of showed me the way of the force in Mosul. Um, and then also when you go through difficult things, you know, we had casualties that first day. And I think within the first three or four days, um, we had the first pediatric casualty and that was the first child I had ever seen die. And so when you're in a high stress, high threat situation, you form really intense emotional bonds. And I think anyone who has been an a war zone can attest to that be that uh, doesn't even have to be a war zone you know but whether it be journalists or um uh people in the military or people in the fire service um wildland or city or police officers etc anyone who has been in those high stress high threat situations you form tight emotional bonds and we just happened to make that emotional bond falling in love. <laughs> so how do you test a new relationship? I, I guess maybe test isn't the right way. I guess it is maybe. How do you test that new relationship in such a high stress environment? Do you think it, it, it obviously fostered it some, correct? Yeah, we, I mean, we didn't have a traditional dating experience. It wasn't like. Yeah, you don't go to the movies other. in Mosul. No, it wasn't like you found each other on an app. And then you're like, let's go out for ice cream. Now let's go out for dinner. Now let's go for a walk on the beach. No, you just, you see the best and worst of each other on a daily basis all day long. 
And I think because both of us were willing to be emotionally vulnerable with each other, you know, he was, um, he was a really intense, hardcore person, but he wasn't afraid to like cry about kids that died either, you know, and neither was I. So having that emotional vulnerability with each other and seeing the best in each other, we just operated on inertia you know we didn't have a plan we're just like okay we're in this and now we're in this together and we continue that throughout the whole battle i think one of my questions was going to be kind of along those lines of how do you how do you deal with some of the things you're seeing and it sounds like you guys used each other as that as that way to deal with some of the stuff you were seeing yeah for sure and i do think that i we dealt with the trauma separately very differently after and at different speeds and paces uh different techniques but in the moment it was very much each other when do you guys leave mosul and how do you make that decision yeah so we leave mosul itself when the battle is officially over which is the next july mid-july on his birthday actually um july 9th when the governor is like victory even though they continued to fight ISIS for weeks and months after. Right. Um, but that is when we pulled our teams out. We're like, we're done here. But we stay in Iraq for another nine months after that because there were a few follow-on battles in Hawija and Qaim and Telafar. Um, and then even once those are over, by the end of the year, I have a, a journalism fellowship to report on kids left behind by ISIS. So I do that throughout the spring of 2018. But I had already known by that winter that I was like, there is something wrong with me. I am not functioning I'm not super sure if well. Me or not, but I lost you on my end. Now. Okay. Um, so yeah, you talked about it at the end of Mosul and it was came around Pete's birthday, correct? And mm -hmm. then you, you guys said there were some more skirmishes. So you, you kind of stayed around for another nine months doing work here and there. Yep. So we did our, the, we had teams out for the follow on battles of Telafar, Hawija, and Al-Qaim. And then I had a journalism fellowship to report on kids left behind by ISIS. Um, and so that's why we stayed until the spring of 2018. So throughout that time, we were trying to get follow-on projects with with our organization, GRM, and there just things were really quiet. There wasn't too much going on. And to be honest, we were both pretty burnt out at that time. And so even by that winter, when we were on vacation, we took like our first actual vacation. We went to Scotland um, just to kind of decompress and relax over the holidays, Greece and Scotland. Um, I knew there was like something wrong with me. I was like, wow, I am incredibly unmotivated. I have no desire to be creative. I lose my train of thought. I lose words that I'm trying to say, like, what is happening? And, and so I knew I needed to just get out of the Middle East, get back to the States for a while. And I knew I needed to spend some time in the outdoors. So I was like, what can get me paid? to uh exercise and be outside and so that is how i found wildland firefighting yeah so stress-free right 
<laughs> for me, it was. I had a really great team. <laughs> so tell me about wildland firefighting. Um, wildland fire was a great part of my life. I loved it so much. So I was, I was really lucky to fall into the team that I did. So I initially applied for hotshot crews, um, specifically the sawtooth shots in Idaho. And normally, like, they don't take, like, rookies, which was understandable. Um, but luckily, their superintendent was nice enough to pass me off to one of his friends who ran um, a Type 6 engine in Ketchum in the, in the Sawtooth National Forest. And it was just such a great team. You know, I had a great captain, a great assistant captain, amazing other members of our of our little engine that stayed very fit. Um, and I just had a great time in a beautiful place with amazing mountains. And it was busy enough that I felt like I got, got my demons out, you know? Um, but it was relaxing enough that Pete and I were still able to spend some time together. If I had been on a hotshot crew, you know, they do multiple two-week roles throughout the whole summer and they come back and have a weekend thing yeah which i i don't think would have been very um good for our relationship so so you do that for how how many summers do you do that i do that for the summer of 2018 and 2019 in between which i did some nursing and pete did a deployment for our nonprofit over to yemen and iraq again and how does it mean it, it's funny because you use that as a way to decompress and relax where the, the, I don't know, majority of humanity would use that as, as man, I need to get away from that and decompress and relax. How does that help foster your self care and a relationship at the, at the same time? Mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't say that it was fostering our relationship. I would just say if I had been on a different type of team, it would have been worse for our relationship. Okay. Um, and there, there are probably other things I could have done for our relationship. Cause after, you know, not to, uh, boil the ending of this podcast, right. but like having read <laughs> some of Pete's journals after he has passed, he was struggling a lot more with things than I realized even back in that time, um, that I didn't know, but we'll get into that more later. Um, so, I don't know. For me, wildland, for my specific experience with wildland fire, it was good. And it was the enough, enough of the type of stress that I needed to cathart. Okay. Um, and I know a lot of people, to be honest, specifically people who are on shot crews, who it's incredibly stressful for them, for them, for their families, they're in higher risk situations. Um, so I would in no way hate my experience to theirs. But I had a great time. And I think a lot of that was specifically because of my team. So. All right. So that's 2018, 2019. You wrap up wildland firefighting in the fall, winter of, of 2019, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Where do you, I, you know, where do you go from there? So then at that time, Pete is getting very frustrated because our organization doesn't really have any funding, doesn't really have any projects. 
So he passes off the reins to a new executive director and kind of, I had been pushing him to go to school for a little while. Because at this time he's, you know, former Marine Corps infantry, wilderness EMT, very tactically proficient in tactical medicine. But when you get into those places where you need funding and projects and it doesn't matter how good you are. And I do not hesitate, not just because he was my husband, but because I saw it in the field. He was tactically and operationally the best person running trauma stabilization points and doing this far forward medicine. I am sorry to everyone else. And I know my opinion is biased and everybody else is great too. But my point being, when you're in those situations, if you don't have an education, if you don't have it, at minimum a master's degree, people look down in you and they're like, who's this fucking guy who's just romping around in his truck, you know? Um, so I, I really encouraged him to continue with his education, in particular getting his paramedic degree. So um, started the prerequisites for that in Rhode Island because his brother was there. I don't know if you can hear me still. to be around family for a little bit. It's got a, it it did a weird freeze thing again. Yeah. Same with you. I just wanted to make sure you could still hear me. I can hear you now. You, you went away for, for a good 20, 25 seconds, but, but now you're back. Okay. What was Um, the last thing you heard? Um, good question. Uh, the, the new leadership into, in the company and, and how people were kind of because I know you used the word kind of demonized by the international community, but it wasn't just that. It was, it was more the matter of if he didn't have the letters behind his name, it, it, people didn't want to listen. Yeah. Yeah. That is what it is in essence. I mean, the the whole controversy with co-locating with military medical entities is, is maybe a conversation for another time. But essentially, when you're in those in those spaces, if you don't have a bunch of letters behind your name, it doesn't matter how good you are in the field. No one will listen to you. Um, so I encourage him, which doesn't make sense because you're you're talking about a guy here who is, who has an immense amount of experience and was very successful in what he, what he did, what he was able to provide to, to, to civilians in, in those combat areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are people who would say differently. And those people are the ones who are used to working in first world medicine and trying to apply what works in the States to a place that is, that's not a place and time where that's not going to work. So, I mean, yeah, anyway, he needed something to focus on. We wanted to spend some time with family. So we land in Rhode Island in the fall of 2019. I get a nursing job. Little do we know, COVID is coming and we don't get to spend time with family anyway. No. Uh, what is what so how do you guys deal with covid and 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 you've got this all this going on because you said pete's going back to 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 get his 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 schooling for a paramedic right Mm -hmm. you've moved to rhode island you're nursing and now covid hits yeah i think covid was a lot harder for pete than it was for me i mean i was nursing and i was in the emergency room so i didn't have to deal with the load that these ICU nurses in particular had to deal with. For me, it just seemed like more time in the ER, but I was sweatier because we were wearing more clothes. <laughs> you know, and to me, it was just a different type of mass casualty. It was a medical one rather than a trauma one. So I, and and, and as far as like the, the lockdown and the isolation, I was not super bothered by it because I'm kind of an introvert anyway. 
and we were new to Rhode Island, so we didn't have any friends to hang out with anyway. So I'm just like, I guess I will go to and from work and hang out with the in-between. But for him, he had a tough, tough time because he had just started classes. He was in the community, and now all of his classes are online. He was a very much a social creature, social butterfly. Um, and so being inside only with me all the time was just, it was really difficult for him. And, and before you broke up before, I, I know you mentioned you hired a new executive director. And so that mm -hmm. you guys have kind of stepped back to not so much day to day with the company, but more on a board, correct? Yes. Yeah. We were for a number of reasons, like we we're both burnt out with trying to come up with new projects and, and make those connections. And, and also we were both very much operations people. Once something's going in the field can run it very well, but we are not the type of person to look up and plan out a fiscal year or, you know, things like this. So yes, we stepped back just to be on the board of our organization. Um, so then COVID, our executive director at the time did a really great job with kind of digging us out of a financial hole and launching new projects in Mexico, which was outside of our traditional, you know, our, our, our traditional MO, but it was a community that needed help and it was good for us stability wise. And I know the question that I have written down from our, from the notes of our conversation where that during COVID, you both kind of said to each other, what do we want to do with our lives? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of a mystery. And I think Pete still questioned that. Hey guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. Can you hear me? Yep. I'm going to connect to headset. headset. <laughs> this is my third one. <laughs> Just found the other two small ones last night. I was like, hmm, because I couldn't find Yeah, oh, well, yeah, awesome. I can hear you. Yeah. These are better. I love so them. you say, you say, you kind of sit back and you go, all right, what do we want to do with our lives? Which is, I mean, to this point, both of you have kind of, I don't want to say fallen into everything, but it feels that way, right? Oh, it kind it's, of feels it's like very you, true. You go from, from one thing that falls to your lap to the next thing that falls to your lap and, and you just, you just take it and, and run with it. I lived up until that point, I lived my life according to what the universe threw at me and what felt right at the time. It so was never you, with you ask any a particular question. intention. <laughs> so you ask a question then of what you want to do. So now it starts, you're, you're going to actually plan something. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, you know, I don't want to do nursing only. I, I've had all these different experiences and they've all been fulfilling in different ways. Um, nursing for one reason, trauma work for GRM and another reason, photojournalism, wildland fire, but they've all got some sort of negative to them, right? As does every job. Um, but I wanted to find something that was more holistic, I guess. And so... I can't go into it 
too much, but a sort of technical rescue career with the Air National Guard is what came to my mind. And it is the path that I'm pursuing now. So. And there's a stop after Rhode Island to Flagstaff, correct? Yep. So Pete ends up getting his uh, associates in emergency management in Rhode Island. And he could have stayed out there for paramedic school, but we were both just done with the East Coast after that first COVID year. And we did get to spend some time with family, but we really needed the mountains and somewhere outdoors. Um, And I needed a new and different nursing job because my stuff was all just short travel contracts. Um, So we narrowed things down based on somewhere out west that wasn't wasn't a big city, but wasn't a town of 3,000 people, somewhere that had a big enough hospital and a paramedic program and nursing openings. Um, so we ended up in Flagstaff in Arizona. So, and while in Flagstaff, the, the, the war in Ukraine pops off. Mm-hmm. So we get to Flagstaff in like, I think November, October or November of 2020. Um, and our first year and year and change, like year and a quarter or so in Flagstaff was beautiful. It was amazing. I can honestly say, because both of us struggled, we were a very, very intense couple. I got very high highs, very low lows, lots of lots of laughing. And then when we fought, it was like big fights because we were both very, very strong headed people. And we were dealing with the trauma from Mosul and alcohol involved and all these different things. So uh, all that to say, that first year and a half in Flagstaff between, I think, the very end of Rhode Island up until when the war in Ukraine started was the first calm time in our relationship. We were happy all the time. We were so, you know, it was the first non-tumultuous time in our relationship, both emotionally and travel-wise. Um, in the do you, do you guys find that you're comfortable in that call? <laughs> Relationship-wise, yes. I mean, we're very happy. Um, but I will also say, like, when, when both when the pullout from Afghanistan happened, because we tried to launch a response there, and then when the war in Ukraine started, both of us were like, oh, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. Got to go. For sure. But I was in the midst of training for what I'm training for now, and I was working. I was like, somebody's got to make a living, so you're the only one who's going over there. But, um, but prior to that, so right, right before, like I think a week or two weeks before Ukraine started, we get married. Just on a, I want to say it was on a whim, but not really. We got engaged. <laughs> we got engaged over Christmas, and I was super surprised because he was a child of a divorced divorced parents pretty gnarly divorce and so he had always told me it's like i don't not really into the whole marriage thing like committed to you but the idea of that was not super strong to him and i hadn't pushed him on it so when he proposed i was like wow what is happening um anyway we didn't know when it was going to happen we didn't really want a huge wedding. And then one weekend we were out drinking and our friends are like, you should just get married. 
And he's like, there's no way I'm still in paramedic school. I don't have time. I looked at his calendar. I'm like, you have a three-day weekend. We have time <laughs> next weekend. So we planned it and got married in the span of a week. It, it uh, takes takes the pressure off. Oh, it was great. It was beautiful. That best time. Um, so yeah, then two weeks later, the war in Ukraine starts. And so is that something that both of you knew immediately? We have to do something there. Yeah, for sure. And it was a point so of contention within our organization, to be honest, because we were members of the board and there were staff members who were staff and we were kind of in a transition time. You know, we were no longer this small mobile ragtag pirate like group of medics, but we were also not a global powerhouse with an unlimited budget like MSF. You know, we were in this middle ground kind of trying to find out who we are, the spaces we should be working and operating in and like what makes sense. And I think there was some difference of opinion between the staff who were actually doing the work and the level of work that Pete and I wanted to make happen. But in the end, Ukraine was a very different conflict than Mosul and it necessitated different, um, different types of operations. I still think we could have run TSPs there well, but that is, that's not what we ended up doing. Um, but we still did some very important medical work there. So Pete goes to Poland to help them try and set up the response and stays for about three weeks. And the day he gets back, his dad dies, like as he's getting off the plane. Um, yeah. Talk about, talk about so many stressors that, that just, it's such a theme in, in, in both your lives. Mm -hmm. So many. And we had just had like a really amazing year and a half, like the least right. stressful ever, other than that, the month surrounding the Afghanistan pullout. Um, yeah. Then goes to Ukraine, doesn't feel like his, you know, views are being, or his expertise is being taken into account, comes back, his dad dies has to deal with that, has to deal with the final three months of paramedic school and worrying about passing that, all the while supporting me and my endeavors and my stresses. And yeah, he was 2022 was not an easy year for him, for sure. Um, then in addition, you know, we move up to Alaska. He passes paramedic school, very proud of him, it's great. We move up to Alaska. He's applying for positions and doesn't get any. He applied to like three different paramedic jobs. And so as someone who is a combat veteran, 10 plus years mm -hmm. of experience as an EMT with CCCC, it was just kind of wild to me. Two of the places are like, oh, someone beat you out on the point system. And the other mm -hmm. one was just like, uh, you got to the final interview, but it's competitive. So try again next time. So he was so sad. He was, you know, as a man in particular for anybody, but in particular as a man, like wanting to provide for your partner and provide you know feel like you're worth something um i think getting turned down for jobs like that was incredibly difficult for him and so you guys moved to alaska in 2022 correct mm -hmm. yeah in the and fall. like you said he can't find a job it stresses him um and 
I can imagine what that feeling is like kind of sitting there going, I've got all of this to give. Mm-hmm. Let me give it. Yep. And that's exactly and he what has you who's encouraging him to do what he needs to do to, to, to fulfill himself. Cause you've said that all along, what, what he wanted to do or what you want to do. You guys supported each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We always so had what, this very strong unspoken bond. Like you want to go do this and you want to travel and you want to do this fulfilling thing. Like I'm never going to tell you no, unless it's, unless I feel like you're doing it for the wrong reason, you know? So where does he go from, from there? I mean, how does it turn around for him? So I don't know if you could say it ever really turned around, turned in the wrong direction. (laughs) I mean, it was good for a time. So he had applied for all these jobs, didn't get them. He still had one kind of in, in the maybe limbo, but has the opportunity to go to Ukraine as a volunteer with another organization, not with ours. Um, Cause we were doing work, but it was mostly in the surgical theater. Um, and he was still on our board at the time. So you can't really work for an organization and be on the board at the same time. So he goes to Ukraine with another organization as a volunteer and they were doing evacuations of, you know, little old ladies and disabled people from near the front lines. They were doing some trauma care for civilians, similar to what we did in Mosul. And he was just stoked to be there. Like he wasn't getting paid, but he was doing what he really, really loved to do. Um, so he does that for a month. He comes back around Christmas, doesn't get that third job. And I can tell that he is, that he had a good time in Ukraine and that he was just really itching to get back there, to get back to somewhere where he felt useful and valid and worthy and all these different things, you know. And I, I encouraged him to it. You know, I, I would encourage him towards everything. I was like, apply to this job, apply to this job. If you want to do ski patrol this winter and that, just that, I'll, I will work more shifts. Like, that's fine. Um, I wasn't excited about him going to Ukraine simply from a selfish perspective because he would be, you know, six or eight weeks on, two weeks off. And, and I had some upcoming military travel. So I knew it would be really difficult for us. Um, but if it was something that helped him feel happier and more fulfilled um, and advanced his life's purpose, then yeah, go for it. So instead of going back as a volunteer, he accepted a job as a uh, country director. So that threw him into the position of not just treating patients. Um, and to be honest, he was doing like five people's job, which he shouldn't have been doing at the time and part part of that responsibility is on him but part of the responsibility is on the organization that he was working for um but what he was doing there that second time is what he was really good at and that is not just medical treatment but he was incredible at creating coalitions so as he did in Mosul he would identify all of these small organizations And by that, I mean, sometimes you have random people who just self-deploy to these places and they say they're an organization, but they're just one or two people, but they're still there wanting to do good. He was incredible at finding all these people from the nooks and crannies of a front line, bringing them together, be like, all right, now we are a coalition of people working to do good and tasking them out to, uh, to where they would be best used. 
And so he had already started building that with the help of other people in Ukraine in the few short weeks that he was there. I know that at the same time, you're still working as a nurse. Uh, yes. Yep. You're working as a nurse. You're, you're doing, you're doing, a, let's call it the project you're working on right now. Yeah. So we're yeah. not going to talk too much about it. Yeah. Um, and you, you, you're, it's a still a new marriage. He's in Ukraine. He's building a coalition. He's, he's doing what he loves. You're, you're finding your way to doing more of what you love mm-hmm. and, 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 and what happens. Oh man. So sorry, I'm just stretching. Um, so at the time, essentially he dies. He gets hit by the Russians. They're, the Russians hit their ambulance with an anti-tank guided missile, you know, but, the, and you could blame a lot of different people. You could blame the circumstance. You could blame him not getting a job. You could blame the lack of resources he had from that organization. But in the end, you can really only truly blame the person who fired that missile, who I'm sure we will never find. Um, But in essence, I mean, so he was working. We were talking. I was working nights at the time. I still work night shifts. And we had been, we would chat back and forth all the time, you know, he always made time for me. I always made time for him, even if he was, you know, in between treating patients and same on my end. So we were messaging back and forth about when we should come see each other that next month. And the messages stopped going through on signal. And I was like, all right, he's in a place without service because that happens. Um, and that was probably around two in the morning. So I think that was like noon Ukraine time. And then I get a call from his organization's executive director at 4 a.m. And my stomach or my heart just like drops into my stomach because there I know there's only that's the only reason why this dude would be calling me at 4 a.m. Alaska time. So this happens while I'm at work. And he's like, Pete, convoy got hit. And I was like, well, where is Pete? And they're like, nobody knows. Um. So it was really chaotic and really confusing. So I leave the hospital. I spend the next three hours just sitting in the parking lot on my phone, switching into journalism mode, calling every human being on the planet that I know. Um, you know, people who are working in Ukraine, people from other medical organizations. Um, and I got every piece of information all along the spectrum, all the way from Pete is dead. I saw his body. He didn't make it all the way up to he is in stable condition in a Doctors Without Borders ambulance on the way to Lviv, you know. Mm. So people told me all of these different stories and he's with this ambulance or this ambulance or at this TSP or at this hospital. And it was a clusterfuck. Sorry for language, but it was... And, and emotionally horrendous for me because it's like, he's alive, he's dead. He's alive, he's dead. He's in a coma. Oh my God. Um, so I'm at a friend's house. This is I had worked the night before. I had only slept like three hours in between shifts. I get called. I'm awake. So other than that three-hour nap, I'm awake for probably 52 hours at this point. And I am almost hallucinating. So eventually, by that next day, close to midnight, 
I was like, there's no way he's alive anyway. If no one has found him by this time, there's no way. Um, because essentially what, what came out later, what happened was that they were in Bakhmut searching for a hard structure to run a TFPN. They had made a plan, you know, in time, out time, and got a call that along the route on the way out, there's an, a woman who had been hit by, I don't know, sniper or a shell or something laying on the street who needed their help. So they pull up in their ambulance and there's a video that came out and almost immediately after they drive up, this missile hits their ambulance and Pete was standing near the back of the van and everybody else was kneeling around the casualty. And so his body took, you know, the majority of the blast. Everybody else had minor wounds and were able to run away. And they left the scene because there was continued incoming fire. And when I heard this initially, I was irate. I was like, you don't leave somebody out there. Like, what, what is happening? You know, even if someone's dead or dying. But it's something I came to peace with later because it was very obvious that he was, to them, that he was very dead and they had to, you know, protect their own lives. So they had to peace out. But anyway, around midnight at that time, there was some viral video of journalists, Ukrainian journalists who had gone to the scene and his body was still there. And so that was the time when I was like, I knew that he was dead. But I still had to wait another four hours or so for people to be able to go in, and retrieve his body, and I could identify it from his tattoos. So roughly 24 hours to, to get a confirmation. Yeah. Which has got to be so frustrating. It was, it was horrendous, you know, and I have lost friends in conflict before, but never someone that's close to me. Um, and I would vacillate between like, okay, I'm in business mode. I'm trying to be like incident commander. I'm making this plan. I'm calling these people to, and I would be fine in that for a few hours. And then I would get an answer of like, no, he's not actually where we thought he was. And I would just like lay on the ground and cry. Um, I think it's very different when you're, when you're in an operational sense and you're dealing with, you know, a patient or a coworker or even a friend versus your spouse. Very different. It's yeah, it's, it's, it would have to be extremely different. I would imagine. Yeah. So what do you do from that moment? Once you find out that it's confirmed that he's, he's, he was dead. What do you do? Oh, even before it was actually confirmed, I had bought the next plane ticket to go to Poland. <laughs> okay. Um, and some people were like, no, just stay here, stay with Pete's family. Just, you know, this could take some weeks to get him back. And I was like, hell no. So like made a plan. I'm like, this is exactly what's going to happen. It's going to take six days. We're going to do this, 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 and this, and this on this day. Um, and thanks to the help of an immense number of people on the ground, it happened exact, almost exactly as I planned. Um, so went over to Poland, was met by some friends, very dear friends who I'd worked with in Iraq, um, as well as a translator who was working with our organization, um, from Ukraine, take the train to Kiev, meet the embassy, get to know exactly what paperwork was necessary 
to get Pete out. I knew he had wanted to be cremated anyway. And so that, that made our travel a lot easier. And all that's, all that's that physical stuff, the manifestation of, of the incident. You have to take care of this. You, you have to get his body back. You have to, you get him cremated. You have to get back to the United States, but are you taking time at that point to start to process it at all? No, I have never felt such wild physical sensations as acute grief, like acute grief in addition to, um, like a week's worth of adrenaline. And I can't even just, it was wild. Like, even though I had been up for a couple days and even then on the plane, I was physically ill. I was dizzy. My hands were shaking. I couldn't sleep for more than 30 minutes at a time going between like awake and crying and almost like catatonic. And then also like, I have to get this business done. And it was like that until I got to his body. And then after that, I li it literally felt like there was a, like someone gave me three liters worth of a cold IV all at the same time. And that's got to be some sort of endorphin or hormone or, or, or chemical let down after adrenaline is gone. But after, right when I got like left seeing his body, it was like that I think all of the adrenaline left my body. Yeah. And yeah, I don't, I don't think I processed it for a while because even until we got back, got to the funeral, um, yeah, it was, it was a while, but I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't overly emotional all the time, but I wasn't incredibly stoic either. You know, I, I've always been a person with big emotions and I allow myself to feel them. So like feel my feelings when I got there and they handed me his ring and his wallet and his passport that was all you know burnt to shreds cry when I saw his body cried a lot at the funeral but processing this type of event and the complexity around it it's I'm still processing it so how do you do you make a conscious effort to try and process then or do you or does it just start to come to you or do you, you, or do you get lost and, and it doesn't come to you? That's an interesting question. Um, I think I've approached grief the way I have approached everything else in my life. I just intentionally face whatever comes up. Just like how I ran, you know, from, from nursing to journalism, from Yemen to Lebanon, et cetera. But I went all in on all those endeavors. Same thing with Pete. I met him. I liked him. We were all in and a part of each other's life. Whatever has come up with me emotionally, I don't skirt around it. I don't try to not think about it. Um, I'm just like, oh, damn. <laughs> and I just face it head on, you know? And that is a combination of spiritual practices and talking to friends and talking to a therapist and continuing on in this endeavor that I'm doing that I know Pete would still really want me to pursue. Um, there are things that I could be doing better. You know, I could, I could relax more. I could meditate. I could read books instead of zoning out, watching movies. My sleep could be better, but 
I think with grief, everybody processes so differently, you know, and it's, it's kind of wild. It, it's, it's, it's very wild. I don't know how else to describe it. Cause there are some days where it doesn't feel real where it's like, oh, he's just still over there working overseas. And there are other days where I wake up and I'm like, oh yeah, it's very tangible that he's been gone for almost eight months. And so obviously your, your recovery and it's still going on, but it's not, it's not linear at all. I, I imagine that you're, you, oh, no. you, you, for the eight months, you've been just all over the place in some sense. Yeah. A hundred percent. There will be, you know, like the month of August, I felt great. I was happy pretty much every day. I felt motivated. I had great sleep. I had good connections with friends and people. And now this month I'm kind of, kind of pissed all the time, honestly. And there've been other months, but I haven't cried very much. And there are other months where I've cried every other day, you know, um, it kind of feels like two steps forward, one step back in a sense, but not even that because it's so erratic, which is kind of why I'm like, you can't really make a plan of exactly how to deal with grief. You just have to accept the feelings that come and allow yourself to feel those feelings because too many people um, are confronted with traumatic situations and they just lock it away in a box and don't allow themselves to feel the feelings or they drink away the feelings. And I am definitely not immune from that group. But, but if I could give advice, I would just say like, allow yourself to feel the things, even though they're incredibly painful. Yeah. That's a, that's a huge thing for people. And, and I've talked about it with a few people on the show that that to allow yourself to sit in it and just feel your feelings and not, not, yeah. and not necessarily react to your feelings, but just acknowledge it and give, give a name to them because mm -hmm. sometimes we don't yeah, even know how to identify it. That's true. That's true. And after Mosul, I didn't understand that the way my, those traumatic experiences were manifesting in me was anger mm -hmm. until I got a therapist and she's like, Oh, all those feelings you're feeling that's anger. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, Oh. And then went into exploring like what I was angry about. Right. You oh, know. cool to know. Thanks. Midwest, where you don't, where you don't get angry. <laughs> um, but I, I also very much acknowledge that I have the luxury to feel my feelings. I don't have kids. Mm. I don't have too many responsibilities other than my jobs, my job and my training. I've got cats. <laughs> um, but yeah, people who have children, I understand that that's much harder to be able to lean in and be like, oh, feel your feelings, take the time because you're responsible for someone else's life still. Yeah, that, that it does, it would change a dynamic for certain. Yeah. So what are the, some of the things that you've done in the last eight months to, to aid this recovery or to aid an acceptance, maybe, maybe not even a recovery? I tried to get outside a lot as much as I can. The outdoors was a big catharsis for Pete. Um, he always loved being in the mountains. I found this list that he called Alaska Pete, mm -hmm. which was his ideal version of himself. And then an Alaska bucket list of places he wanted to go and things he wanted to do. So I've tried to do a few of those things. Okay. Um, and then just continuing on my path for, for this air guard endeavor um 
my squadron has been incredibly supportive and caring and both giving me support and space that I need. So just leaning into friendships too, it was a really interesting time because we had just gotten to Alaska or really settled in in October and he died in February. So we were still both very new to the state. And so any friendships that I had were, you know, superficial at best, but people really stepped up to help me and spend time with me. And um, learning to lean on friendships is a, a new thing for me because I'm not someone who likes to ask for help. That, that doesn't surprise me. Help. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't surprise <laughs> me at all. You really need help. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk art a little bit, because I know you wanted to give a shout out to, to somebody that, that from and i'll just say from instagram because i don't i don't know her. i just started following mm-hmm. her myself but let's talk about the art in and in, in, in general and then in specific what the art that you've you we discussed from instagram oh yeah 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 so i mean you could ask what i did to grieve and there's the general the general combination of crying drinking hanging out with friends getting out into the outdoors etc um but a sort of non-traditional way that I really grieved was one, writing poetry and that I think gave voice to some of my feelings in, in particular that, you know, because nobody's relationship is perfect either that looks like it from the outside that I had a lot of complicated feelings about where we were as a couple. And so being able to put that in relation to his death in poetic terms was very helpful for me for a, a period of time, for a couple months. But then also buying art, um, not all original pieces, just a couple. Um, but I, for a long time, I think it was like May through July, I would buy some new art piece every other week. And a lot of times it was death, death adjacent or I would say multiverse after death life goes on type of work or love artwork etc um and one one it it helped give voice to my feelings and two i was like well i can't come home to my husband i might as well come home to something my mailbox <laughs> um but there was one in particular uh on instagram anyway her name is invader girl and I had followed her for, I think, a year before Pete died anyway. I had bought a couple of her prints. They're very uh, military-centric, uh, operational environments, et cetera, but they're also very ethereal. You know, all of her backdrops are almost this sunset or sunrise style of painting with really strong, bold foregrounds. Um, almost always some sort of ops dude with nods on. And now she's expanded her work a lot. But anyway, it was a week after Pete died. I was looking at her page and there was this one that came up called Come Home Love. And it was the first one I had ever seen that was not an ops bro painting. And it was this woman sitting on a bench, smoking, like looking out into the distance, out to the sea, into the mountains. I was like, oh my God, that's me. (laughs) So... That was the first original piece of art I bought. And the first one that, I don't know, it touched me in a certain way. Um, And it was really cool. So we stayed in touch a little bit, had chatted back and forth. And then 
I think about a month ago, um, a new piece came up and I don't even remember the title of it, but it has a woman in the front wearing nods and it's got a guy behind her who is, um, she has this particular technique for faces where they're, you know, purple almost being blasted off or extended out to the side. There's a guy standing behind her with his arms around her in this painting. And I immediately messaged her. I was like, do you have a print of this? Because it was an exact parallel to one of Pete and my wedding photos or like a yin and yang parallel to it. You know, in our photo, I'm looking at him and he's looking at the camera. And in this painting, the woman's looking at the the audience and the man's looking away. And I was like, I actually have this painting. <laughs> um and she was like, you know, this doesn't, I hope this doesn't sound too weird, but I painted this with you or with your story in mind. Um, and so I, I think it's a really incredibly powerful piece and it's hanging above my bed right now. So, Yeah. And, and I think I'd like the story about the art because it's one that I hadn't heard before. Somebody using art in that sense as a, as a way of recovery and not, not in the sense, mm -hmm. of course, I've heard of people using art, but more of like of, of the of the, the traditional Maybe. sense where you're saying you're, you're writing poetry or you're creating these, the, the, the visuals. But in this sense, you're just, you're, you aided a recovery based off of what someone else has painted. Mm -hmm. So I think that's interesting. Yeah. And, and I, and if, if you guys are, if you guys are on Instagram, go ahead and check her out. It's, it's at just at invader girl and her art is pretty amazing. It's, it's, it's very it's one of the, those pieces where it's all fascinating to, to open it up and look at it and then just try to, to, to delve into it a little bit. So give her, give her a, give her a follow and, and take a look at her art. Um, so where do you think you are today? I mean, I mean, obviously you're at home in Alaska, you've, you're working in the hospital, you've, you've, you've got the training you're working on, but emotionally and mentally and, and where's your health at today? How are you, what would you, how would you identify yourself today? I think it's about the same as a couple months ago, which I told people was like 70%. Uh, and I compare that to where I was last year. Last year being physically at like the peak of my athleticism and then also incredibly mentally strong and very happy. Uh, so physically, mentally, and emotionally. I think I range between... 65 and 80 percent of where I should be so yeah and it's hard because you know if you want to get better in any aspect of life that requires consistency and grief doesn't always allow you to be consistent no and that's where that's um, where I mentioned you know not healing in a linear progression because it, it, it isn't mm -hmm. consistent yeah. And, you know, I will get frustrated physically if I'm like, oh, I'm not in this place where I was last year, two steps forward, one step back. And a friend of mine was like, oh, you just have to control the controllables. Well, do you believe that you can control how you, your grief? No, but you can control how you react to it and right. what you give into and the choices that you make. So. I'm at, I'm at the point in my journey, I think, where I'm starting to be able to take ownership for 
like I was prior to Pete's death, you know, taking ownership for like, oh, maybe I should go to bed earlier instead of doom scrolling through our old photos. Or maybe I should have a bottle of Gatorade instead of a bottle of wine. Right. <laughs> you know, things like that. That's an extreme. But um, yeah, you can. I think that's the difference between someone who can build a new life after grief and someone who continues to live in what was a beautiful time but ultimately the past so i i I don't remember who the author was but i will tell you if i ever find it but it was in someone's newsletter that they they said something about the journey through grief is not not only accepting your new life but learning to love um learning to love your new life that you didn't want. Mm. Yeah. And, and I imagine it's also a, a willingness or learning how to, to let go of what you thought that life was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Cause nobody plans. Nobody. Well, some people are able to take time to plan for what it will be like to lose their spouse. You know, if they go through a prolonged illness or cancer mm -hmm. or even even if they're in a car accident and they end up in the ICU and don't make it. But um, our situation was instantaneous. Mm -hmm. And so you don't have time to plan or think of it or grieve or say goodbye or, you know, because we had been through these intense experiences together and so I think we both felt pretty invulnerable, you know, it's like, it's like people who made it all the way through a world war and then died in some stupid skirmish after peace had right. been declared, you know? Um, so yeah, I wasn't able to plan for what it would be like to lose him. And so it, it, that has been, yeah, it's just taken a lot of time. So we're not going to, I won't, I won't ask you too many questions about what your future holds, because I know that you've got some, some, some training coming up that we're, we're kind of shying away from and not to be cryptic to anybody. It's just, no, not, it's just I'll, not be some, in I'll be in Alaska. Right. Put it that way. Um, yeah. But how, so during that, how do you plan to, to, to still deal with everything? Cause it's going to be an intensive year if you're into what you're planning on getting into. Yeah. I think that. The training and perpetual forward motion will be good for me as long as I continue to stay conscious about my feelings. Because now when I'm working, it's easier, it's easy for me to not be held to a particular schedule or a time or standard. And I can be like, oh, I'll sleep until noon if I want to. And that's why I can doom scroll through our old photos till 4 a.m., you know. But I think being in a structured environment, will be good for me. Um, it would not have been good for me if I were to have started the training back in March mm -hmm. or August, like I was supposed to. Um, but coming up on this point to go in a few weeks, I will, I think it will be good. So let's get to, uh, my last two questions I'd like to ask everybody. Uh, and, and I'm curious well, I'm always curious what, what the answers are going to be, but, um, uh, 
I, I don't know if you've ever read the book, uh, the things they carried. It's a, it's a novel out of Vietnam or not that book. Yeah. So, you know, you know, the, the premise to the book and that's kind of where I bastardized the title for this show. And, and along those lines, I like to ask everybody what an everyday carry is for them. You know, what's something that you won't leave home without, or you feel naked without. Oh, that's a good question. Other other than the standards of like phone and wallet. Um, yeah, preferably. Yeah, I always have some form of sunglasses with me. Okay. Even when it's not sunny, it's kind of weird. Like, it's almost like a, if I'm uncomfortable in social situations, I can take them off and fiddle with them. If I don't want to look at someone, I can put my sunglasses on. Um, you're the second person has used sunglasses. It's, uh, her name was Jess Rambo and she, she, uh, is better known on Instagram as the painted Buffalo. She's a Marine Corps vet. Oh, nice. And, um, uh, she yeah, said that was yeah. her, that was her go-to. She always has them on. And, and sure enough, if you look at pictures, she either has them on or they're on her head at, at all times. Honestly, I don't know where it came from, but if you look back on photos of me, even in Mosul, and then it like, tr I'm a, I have been a big trail runner in like trail races that I have run there. It could be sunny outside, but they're just on my head. <laughs> they're never even on my face. They're just <laughs> accessory. So I don't know, man. Sunglasses right. for sure. Well, what's a book that you've read that you kind of, you want to share with the audience? Something that's going to give some value. Ooh, even if it's um, just entertainment. I. Yeah, no. Um, Deep River Deep by River. Carl Marlantes. Okay. So Marlantes wrote Matterhorn. Mm -hmm. Very, um, I, I still need to read that one, but that one's on Vietnam. Deep River is a great one if you're driving cross country and need 30 hours of material to okay. listen to. Uh, it's just a really fascinating family anthology story that follows um, one particular female protagonist from post-World War One era Finland all the way out to the West Coast where her family be, uh, kind of starts in the logging industry and, and unions and whatnot. And it's just really great for character development. Okay. And a time and part of the world that I hadn't experienced before. So. All right. Perfect. And Marlantis is a great writer. All right. Well, then I will, I will add that to the notes and, and uh, hopefully some people will check it out. Well, I... um. It's been a great two hours, actually. I, I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, thanks for thanks for humoring me, and thanks for coming on and sharing your story, and and thanks for just doing what you're doing, and and I hope everything works out in the next, you know, well, we'll say the next few weeks, but in the year and in, in coming up year, and just I don't know, I don't know how to say it because I don't want to give too much away, but I'm excited to hear how uh, it goes. I'm I'm excited for this journey of life, no matter how things turn out, and if there's if there's anything that I've learned from this last eight months, it's that no matter what you do in life, even if you don't fulfill your ideal of success, you're still a valuable human being and person and soul and, and someone who has value in the world. So It's funny you mentioned the word success because I had that conversation the other day about what is success and how do we redefine success when when... When you're kind of smacked in the face with the with this premise of of changing your idea of success because that's just not what you want anymore, mm -hmm. or you or and you're not doing it for the right reasons or the right people. Yeah, 
And really yeah, success is what sure. you do for yourself and, and, and how, how you can walk away and go, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of what I did there. Yeah, I agree. So it's, it's, I, I just ironic that you bring up the, that, that topic. And so, I, yeah, and just, it's a, it's a definition that, that is fluid. I think in most, it should be fluid in most people's lives. It, it should be. And just because you fail at something doesn't mean that you're not a, not a success. So it depends on what you consider success. And that's something that I've learned through some, some spiritual experiences this year and conversations with friends. Like I've always been a very, I've always been very hard on myself and very accomplishment driven. And if I fail at something, it's always been very distressing to me. Yeah. But I've just come to realize and, and think over it that like, you don't always have to be a hundred percent six quote unquote success in the eyes of the world and all your endeavors to be, to be successful to yourself and valuable and whatnot. So. Perfect. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Go, uh, it's been great. go enjoy the rest of your day and, and, uh, hopefully everything goes well in the future and keep, keep me informed. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see how it goes. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. And we're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourself and remember to check in on each other.